Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Good evening, my, my name is Paul Keeley and I'm going to present my pap a paper on my research looking at the recently deceased Liverpool Care Pathway. As a neophyte historian, I discovered quite quickly that the, um, the historians like alliteration, hence the title. We can think of the history of medicine as relating to distant events in the past, but my aim in taking the LCP as a subject for examination using a historian's tools is to open a significant and relatively recent event to critical analysis, to evaluate the circumstances surrounding this event, and to examine the forces, medical, social, and political at play. My hope is also to collect near contemporary oral history for future use and analysis. And like the journalism I examine, my analysis of events is simply a rough first draft of history. This paper is a historical study and analysis of the events surrounding the, the emergence of the Liverpool Care Pathway, an integrated care pathway for dying patients. Developed in the late 1990s by Marie Curie Liverpool, which was adopted by many health trusts and boards across the United Kingdom. The LCP garnered criticism from health professionals and um, increasing media and political attention until a review ordered by the UK government and chaired by Baroness Neuberger recommended its withdrawal in 2013. As part of this study, I've used a number of primary sources, the general medical literature and debates in ethical journals, Secondly, I examined the general print media and mainstream, mainstream online and broadcast news services. Hansard was searched for parliamentary debates relating to the um, LCP. And the second and third editions of the hubristically titled Care for the Dying, A Pathway to Excellence were also consulted. Finally, I undertook a series of oral history interviews with professionals involved in the development, review, and de-implementation of the LCP. The transcripts and recordings of these are kept uh, in an archive for future scholarship at your sister college in Glasgow. The conventional history of palliative care um, and the hospice movement is one largely centered on the work of Dame Cicely Saunders, sometime wartime nurse, lady almoner, and subsequently physician, whose work on opiates at St. Joseph's Hospice for the Dying in Hackney led to um, her to establish the first generally acknowledged modern hospice at St. Christopher's in Sydenham, South London, in 1967. A rapid expansion in hospices continued with the establishment of training and education um, programs, and within 20 years, in 1987, recognition as an established medical specialty. From 1967, there was a progressive increase in both the size and diversity of palliative care and the growth of the number of hospices in the UK. There are currently 220 hospices in the UK. And in addition to that, a growth of community um, palliative care teams and hospital palliative care teams and the development of academic and teaching units. The timing is significant. The year of the foundation of St. Christopher's 1967 was a year within a decade of seemingly endless and turbulent societal change. And palliative care has always been somewhat countercultural within medicine in its self-perception, particularly in addressing taboos regarding death and dying. 
there was a clear sense that hospices represented a countercultural movement, a demedicalization of death. However, despite its countercultural view of itself, palliative care, at least in the UK, looked to integrate itself into the existing health systems with increasing funding from the NHS in the UK. As this integration within the framework of medicine through the 80s was going on, there were two developments that become germane to our story. The first, uh, and I have to admit, having worked in this building for sign, to have been formerly an enthusiast for evidence-based medicine, the first was the vogue for evidence-based medicine, which was defined as the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about the care of individual patients. There was a further impetus to the, the evidence-based process by both private funders of healthcare in North America and state providers elsewhere. With a near exponential growth in expenditure on healthcare in developed countries, it became abundantly clear that the use of limited funds would have to be justified on the basis of proof of both effectiveness and cost-effectiveness. At about the same time, health providers were developing integrated care pathways, which have been defined as structured, multidisciplinary care plans, which detail essential steps in the care of patients with a specific clinical problem. These were intended to put into practice clinical guidelines based on best evidence and allow this to be applied to particular clinical scenarios. Clinical pathways appeared as a result of the adaptation of documents used in industrial quality management to improve efficiency in the use of resources and to finish work in a set time. The Liverpool Care Pathway is an example of an integrated care pathway and was developed by the Marie Curie Hospice in Liverpool in conjunction with the Royal United Liverpool Hospitals in the late 1990s. The specialist palliative care team, this is Professor John Ellishaw, um, had identified ICPs as a potential means of improving the care of patients dying in acute hospitals. Their aim was to transfer the quality of care found in hospices to hospitals and other environments. The Liverpool Care Pathway did not develop in isolation, but was rather part of a culture streamlining, dis streamlining disparate practice with a limited evidence base. At one stage through the 1990s, the major journal of the specialty, Palliative Medicine, published a series of papers highlighting the protocolized management of everything from breathlessness to angry patients as flow diagrams. Palliative care had bought into the, the protocol paradigm, and despite the fact that even evidence-based interventions were variably effective in changing clinicians' behavior. Next, we should consider the wider political context. After nearly 20 years of marketization of the NHS, a new Labour government was elected in 1997, just as the LCP was being developed. Despite the change of administration, health policy retained notions of augmenting patient choice, partnership with non-NHS agencies, monies following patients, and incentivizing innovation through, through financial rewards. It was in this context that health policy, of health policy that the Liverpool Care Pathway was adopted across the NHS in England and ultimately in other parts of the UK, including Scotland. The end-of-life strategy, which, uh, which was launched at that time in 2008, uh, was launched with a budget of £286 million in England over the first two years. The LCP consisted of a set of clinical documents and supporting algorithms and guidelines with clear instructions on how the documentation should be completed. 
It depended in large part on the diagnosis that had been outlined by Dr. Roger Higgs in 1999, an idea which I feel is problematic. In this, the patient was deemed to be dying if it was agreed by the clinical team and two of four criteria were fulfilled, namely the patient's bedbound, semi-comatose, only able to take sips of fluid, and no longer able to take tablets. These are tautological. Someone who can't take tips, can't take sips of water, can't take tablets, and the semi-comatose patient is by definition bedbound. It's my contention that, that this idea, the idea that a range of physiological changes with a single endpoint, death, could be framed as a diagnosis. A dying patient looks remarkably like an acutely unwell patient, and it requires significant skill, experience, and care to differentiate between the two. The LCP did not allow for this. It's precisely this idea of framing death as a disease that was highlighted by the medical historian Charles Rosenberg as problematic. How does one manage death, which is not precisely a disease, when demands for technological ingenuity and activism are almost synonymous with public expectations of a scientific medicine? Some were less than enamored by the move towards guidelines and protocols, fearing the loss of moral agency in clinical decision-making. Fiona Randall and Robin Downey wrote, there is a more sinister moral consequence inherent in the exclusive and indiscriminate use of formal guides for decision-making. Where treatment is chosen on the basis of flowchart or following clinical guidelines, the carers may have seemed to have discharged their professional responsibility for that decision simply by following the guidelines. Back to the story. In 2012, a freelance journalist, Simon Caldwell, alerted the Daily Mail to the story, and the Daily Mail oops, among other newspapers started to field stories, often centering on the concerns of Professor pa Patrick Policino, a neurologist in Kent, about the concern, his concerns with the LCP. Oops, I seem to have lost a page. Soon after the adaptation of the LCP across England and subsequently Scotland, disquiet began to be voiced, first in the Catholic medical journals and then more widely in medical, uh, medical ethics journals. The principal protagonists were a palliative physician, Dr. Anthony Cole and Professor Patrick Policino. The objections voiced were that the criteria selected were too nonspecific to represent an accurate di diagnosis. The critics were concerned that such a pathway might be a backdoor route to euthanasia in essence, by starving or dehydrating patients to death. Their criticisms were largely grounded in Catholic moral teaching and couched in traditional Thomistic ethics. Their respondents tried to defend the LCP in the language of postmodern secular ethics. Compromise, while irreconcilable languages were used, becomes near impossible, as we've seen with current political discourse. Back to the story. In spring 2012, the freelance journalist Simon Caldwell alerted the Daily Mail to the story, and the Daily Mail, amongst other newspapers, started to field stories, often centering on the concerns of Professor Patrick Policino, a neurologist in Kent, about his concerns about the LCP. As can be seen from the graph shown, stories escalated through the succeeding months, and more people came forward to report stories of loved ones who died on the LCP. Increasingly, newspaper commentators added their voices to the crescendo of concern about the LCP. Melanie Phillips, is writing in the Daily Mail, was perhaps the acme of this. 
the emphasis is mine. Horrifyingly, the LCP has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. When people are put on it, they're said to be dying. But they may not be dying at all, not, that is, until they were put on the pathway, whereupon they really do die as a result. In other words, they're killed. What's more, they're killed in the most cruel and callous way through starvation or dehydration. And this is a health service that's supposed to be a national byword for compassion. This really is an obscene abuse of people who expect the NHS to care for them, not to kill them. In the words of the Scottish journalist Chris Deering, politics has become the art of damage limitation. And the nexus of politics and press is such that it's impossible for such a public scandal to avoid scrutiny by politicians. This was not going away. As is evident from the graph shown, mentions of the LCP um, in Parliament followed the press stories. You see a huge spike there from uh, uh, late in 2013 or mid-2013. Parliamentary debates were at times heated, but the key revelation came in October 2012 that hospital trusts in England have been offered payments to incentivize the use of the LCP, or in the words of the Daily Mail, hospitals bribed to put patients on the pathway to death. In October and November 2012, Norman Lamb, Minister of State, uh, of State for Care and Support, called a number of roundtable meetings with relevant professionals, including Professor John Ellishaw, the principal author of the LCP, Claire Henry, National Director of the End of Life Care Programme at the Department of Health, Professor B. Wee, President of the Association of uh, Palliative Medicine. It was at the meeting on the 26th of November 2012, attended also by patients and families affected by the LCP, both supporters and critics of the pathway, that Norman Lamb announced the setting up of an inquiry under an independent chair, eventually named as Baroness Neuberger. The panel Baroness Neuberger and Norman Lamb assembled had a wide range of participants representing all the estates with an interest in the LCP and its demise. These were journalists, policymakers, doctors, nurses, lawyers, and patient groups, and a number of rapporteurs with expert experience in palliative care. The Neuberger Committee reported on uh, in July of 2013 with 44 recommendations. Most of these were uncontroversial, but some had such worryingly basic advice that patients who can eat and drink should be allowed to, and that clinicians should not falsely document care. The key recommendation was, however, that the use of the Liverpool Care Pathway should be replaced within the next six to 12 months by an end-of-life care plan for each patient, backed up by condition-specific good practice guidance. Thus, the Liverpool Care Pathway ceased to be. This, I might add, is the tombstone of Patrick Caulfield, an artist in Highgate Cemetery. You, um, my research leads me to a number of conclusions. The framing of death as a disease uh, with a diagnosis by professionals in palliative care caused a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of dying by both professionals and the public and led in part to the controversy of the LCP. The reduction of care to a bureaucratic process, while part of a general trend in healthcare, undermined the claims of palliative care to holism and opened up the specialty to accusations of euthanasia by stealth. The ethical defence of the Liverpool Care Pathway did not address the ethical framework its critics had adopted and could never therefore offer a response satisfactory to its opponents as defenders and opponents were essentially speaking different ethical languages. 
in such a situation, a resolution could not be achieved which pleased both the, all the protagonists. The press coverage of the cases surrounding the LCP was skewed to highlight cases which were atypical and sensational. The editorialising and commentary was at times frenzied and histrionic, reaching a crescendo of attention that could not be avoided by the politicians charged with health policy and delivery. The adoption of the Liverpool Care Pathway without a body of evidence to support it was inconsistent with the stated policy of evidence-based medicine, a claim which the developers had themselves made explicit. This created a situation where the tool was uh, not a means for delivering care, but led to the emergence of a ritual in which care was subordinated to the recording of care. Um, one of the interviewees um, put this neatly. Being medics, we were never really taught about how to be formally creative, how to be creative in a rigorous way, like artists and humanities people are. So when we created a new thing, if you don't have science and you don't really have creativity, what's left is ritual. And he, he, he described it as being similar to the production of a samurai sword. A claim to excellence on the part of the LCP did not take into account the problems translating care from one setting, hospices, to another, hospitals. The claim to excellence on the part of hospices is itself question-begging. Finally, the key decision, the decision to support the LCP in the face of criticism was undermined by the preceding marketization of health. A policy of support which seemed to reward death with funding was sufficiently repugnant to the general public that it resulted in the LCP becoming politically unsupportable. Thank you for listening, uh, especially to the mixing up my um, pages. Um, I'm grateful for any feedback or comments that you have, whether that's now uh, in in uh, directly to me or later over drinks or if you're feeling anonymous um, by emailing me or contacting me on Twitter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.